pray. Does it sound all right to you? Yeah? All right, let's do that. Heavenly Father, we're glad to be here this morning. Uh, We are thankful that you have called us to be a people when we were not a people, that you have shown us mercy when previously we had no mercy. And for that, we are just humbled and in awe and thankful for you. Uh, We ask as we come before uh, your holy scriptures again this morning that you would open our minds and that you would open our hearts uh, to what it is that you want us to uh, learn and to grow from this morning. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so this morning uh, we're talking about two different core values. The first one is every member a minister. I'm going to go out on a limb and say most of us, if you've grown up or been around Church of Christ for very long, uh, you probably are fairly familiar with this concept. So it's not going to be a, I don't think I'm going to have anything really insightful to say this morning. Okay, so there's my disclaimer. But before we launch into this and a few of the scriptures that kind of uh, point us in this just direction that uh, every member is a minister, I want us to think about uh, what is a priest? We have to think about the priesthood just a little bit because that's the, as far as we're concerned in the Old Testament, that's the first division of kind of clergy and laity, if you will. So talk to me a little bit about what is a priest or what was a priest. Okay, so there's somebody who intercedes for the people with God. Okay, they do sacrifices. Yes, it was a pretty bloody job, to be quite uh, blunt. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. They got a little bit. That was their food. They didn't get to spend their time tilling the land, right, like the rest of the Israelites. And so for them, this is their way of uh, still being able to eat and uh, survive. Yeah, so they got to eat some of the some of the leftovers. Unpaid. Yeah. Sorry, say again, Mark? They wore garments. Yeah, they had, they had something to kind of set them apart, wasn't it? Yeah, they got to wear cool clothes or, or different clothes at the very least. They were given land. Yeah, some of them did have land. Not all the Levites served in the temple or the tabernacle all the time. Um, and so they did have some land, but it was definitely a much smaller portion. It was kind of scattered throughout all of Israel. Had somebody else over here earthly judges yeah sorry did i get you right yeah it's interesting to see a lot of the different ways in which they function very much like judges or lawyers or uh, appraisers uh, they were the medicine uh, they were the medical they were the doctors in some ways of the day they're the ones that decided whether this mold was uh you know going to just you could kind of clean it off with some water and we'd be all good or if we had to burn the house down okay uh, they made those kinds of decisions it's really quite interesting uh, one of the, a couple of the other things they did, and we, I'm sure we would get there eventually, they led Israel in worship, right? Some of the stuff they did. They led Israel in worship, uh, and they taught the people. They reminded the people that this is your history with God. This is where you've come from. This is who you are. As a matter of fact, it's interesting to consider where priests even come from. It's not a job application. There's not an open call. There's a couple things that come together. It's a very special position. You are chosen by genetic lottery. (laughs) You have to be born a Levite. And on top of that, you need to be consecrated and set apart for the job that you do. That's with oil and that's with blood. It's quite interesting to go back into the beginning of Leviticus and kind of reread some of that stuff where um, Aaron ends up taking the blood of this goat and he, and he, (laughs) he sprinkles it on the altar and he rubs it on the horns of the altar and then he takes it and he puts it on the right ear lobe and the right thumb and the right big toe of all 
the priests that are going to serve. It's an, it's an interesting ceremony they go through to become a priest. So that brings us to our, uh, at some level, this brings us to our core value of every member of the Lord's body as a minister. There is no clergy laity separation in the church of the New Testament. We are call, all called to service, so we must each seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit and how God wishes us to share the grace he has shown us. Uh, one of the dominant images of the church in the New Testament, as a matter of fact, is of being kind of the new Israel, right? Um, there's this sense in which the church takes over being Israel. This is the true Israel, if you will. And sometimes even, um, so it's interesting to note then how the priestly positions kind of shifted, right? So Aaron used to be the high priest, but now who's the high priest? Jesus, absolutely. Jesus is the high priest. So if Jesus is the high priest, all those who belong to him are in fact priests. That's part of the shift that takes place in the New Testament. All of those who belong to him are set apart as priests. And as priests, they uh, everybody who belongs to Jesus are therefore called to offer their lives in service uh, to one another. Uh, one of the most direct comparisons of this is in First Peter. So that's where we're going to go. If you want to open up to First Peter, uh, I've got the references up there. We'll do a little bit of reading, and uh, we're going to move fairly quick because otherwise I'm going to get bogged down here. So in First Peter, uh, chapter one, pick it up in verse thirteen. It says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be uh, brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves, can you hear the priestly language? Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have, uh, sorry, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, the living and enduring word of God. So a few things uh, I just want you to kind of pick up on as we, we read through this. First of all is this call of being holy because I am holy. See, the church is to reflect God's character. It's not Kelly's job. To reflect God's character. It's not Jonathan's job to reflect God's character. That is, that is you. Right? Peter's writing to the church. So the church is to be holy as God is holy. That's a very different picture than Israel in the Old Testament where there is a separation. There's like the holy priests and then there's like the holy of holies where only that one priest can go one time a year. It's not that way anymore. Everybody is to reflect 
God's being in their conduct. They are to be set apart. They are to be different, a contrast to the society around them. Uh, kind of among other things, the priests would of Israel were to reflect God's character within the midst of Israel, ultimately so that all of them would reflect God's character to the world. We know that was uh, a little bit of a flawed experiment. didn't always go according to plan, right? Israel fell flat on their face more than a few times, didn't reflect God's character much. But that wasn't the design. The design was that they would. And so it begs the question at some level, what is God's character, right? There's a there's kind of a piece there of what are we to reflect? Um, the other piece I want you to take a look at here is redeemed, this language of being bought back. Um, you know, we've been participating probably more than we ought in the uh, McDonald's monopoly over the last couple months. And so we get these little coupons every now and again that's an instant win, and it says, you get a cheeseburger. And so I take that in. And I buy back my cheeseburger with that coupon, right? I redeem that coupon and I get my stuff. Well, here the language of redemption is that same economic transaction, but it's so much deeper. Because it's interesting the way Peter talks about it. You're redeemed, you're bought back, not with silver or gold. It's not a valuable enough currency. It doesn't cut it for priests to be bought back with silver and gold. It's not costly enough. You were bought with the blood of Jesus It's a powerful image. It's a powerful image. The lives of Israel, I mean, you can think back to Egypt. Their freedom from slavery was bought by the blood of the Passover lamb painted on their doorways, right? It's the blood of Jesus that has bought you back from that empty way of life into this glorious existence in God and this reconciliation with God. Okay, so that's part of the image here. Um, I want you to notice as well that there's some expectations here that are associated with the transaction, though. It's not just you're bought back to, therefore, continue doing what you've always done. That's that's not the way it works. There's some expectations of obedience and of, of reverence, of deep love for one another. These are things that go along with this redemption. And then again, the priestly language of uh, purification, right? So it's partly genetic lottery. You get born into being a priest, but you also have to be purified and consecrated and set apart uh, for that particular role. So uh, like us as well, we are born again. Uh, we are purified by the blood of Jesus. And uh, Peter actually says, by our obedience. It's one of the things that purifies us and sets us apart uh, for that priestly work. Another place, we're going to turn to chapter 2 now. It's not very far down the line. Read just a few verses. Yeah, go ahead. Is that a, is that a common phraseology that we use often in the Church of Christ, born again? I know, I hear it outside the Church of Christ a lot. Do we use it? That's a good question. I haven't heard it as much lately. I would say historically I'm pretty comfortable with it. So I've heard it a lot at some point in my life. Uh, what's What's your experience? Is the phrase born again something that we speak of often? Right. Right, okay. So, but, but in your experience, kind of having, you know, spent a lot of time uh, around the church, is that a phrase that we use? Not usually. And I, I think what you mentioned actually maybe as part of it is, uh, is that we're kind of like, you can't be, you can't say Christian without assuming born again. Right? Yeah. Mm. True. Although there was that one year. (laughs) 
We did. We did a whole year talking about the Holy Spirit. I think I think it's uh, it's one of those pieces for sure. You know, it's interesting as you read the Bible. This is a total aside, by the way. Uh, we all have our hobby horses, and we all have our perspectives, and we all have those places that we've come from. And so when we read Scripture, uh, as much as we like to think that we're just uh, kind of reading Scripture impartially and uh, just as it is, we're actually picking and sifting through it subconsciously. And one of the things that in our movement we've tended to... Uh, explain away or push to the side has been the Holy Spirit, I think. And increasingly we're going, no, if we're going to be faithful to the whole word of God, I think we need to pay attention to this, uh, this, this, this spirit of God, this, this a fellow member of the Trinity that, you know, yeah, is clearly present across the New Testament. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. It's an interesting observation, kind of that, uh, what kind of, there's Christians and there's born again Christians, right? Alright, one more and then we're gonna keep moving. Not because it's not interesting, but because I got a lot to cover. Uh, that's a good question that we're not gonna take up today, but it is a good question. Can, can born again be unborn again? Oh, Dallas, just cause you're a friend. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. May 8th, 1994. It was, it, was a, it was a big day. It's a big day, right? I mean, our, our baptism is a pretty significant day in our walk, right? And I hope, I hope we never forget that day. Okay, we're going to move ahead. Uh, chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone... Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then jumping down to verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him, who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you. Okay, so this next little section, I'm just going to touch on a couple things. This next little section jumps into kind of, I would say, some ethical exhortations. So how do we live then? If that's who we are, that chosen people who's been shown mercy, how do we live then? He says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your souls. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor or the governor's. Uh, for it is God's will by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. It's an interesting... Uh, set of things that Paul starts talking about. Sorry, Peter starts talking about um, in this text. And it's it's going to get me distracted. So let's notice just a couple things. First of all, you, you are being built into a holy priesthood. Remember, that's the connection we're trying to make this morning. Uh, that every member is a minister. There is no priestly class and laity class. There is just followers of Jesus and not followers of Jesus. That's That's the new division. There is no other division. Okay, uh, so you are being built into a holy priesthood. 
um, offering spiritual sacrifices. Notice here, for Peter, the church does the work of the priest. Okay, the church takes up that priestly work of offering sacrifices. In this case, spiritual sacrifices. And it's interesting that woven throughout these first two chapters are all sorts of ethical exhortations that I think are some of these spiritual sacrifices. So, for example, in chapter 1, verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. To me, that's a pretty clear kind of sacrifice that we make. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Chapter 2, verse 13, submit yourselves to every human authority. Chapter 2, verse 16, do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. That's the kind of stuff that unpriestly, unchurched, not followers of Jesus do. The people who follow Jesus do these kinds of things. This is their spiritual sacrifice. And again, Peter can't help but keep hammering home on that identity that we have in Jesus. And it is chosen. It's not an accident. This is no genetic lottery. This is, you've been chosen. Royal. You are holy, set apart. You're special. They're the same kinds of words that God used to describe Israel and the priesthood. And now they're saying this is you, the church. They're the words that tell us who we are, and most importantly, whose we are. Not just who we are, but whose we are. The people who are only a people because of God, and those who have received mercy. And then finally, uh, your identity is on display. And again, I've touched on this already, so I won't dwell here. But ultimately, Peter ends each of these kind of identity-defining passages with an exhortation or urging to live in a countercultural way that reflects good on God. That's probably the best way to, you know, think about, does this reflect good on God? That's what the priests were supposed to do. Um, here's the kicker, and I've said it once before. I already kind of gave it away. Peter is talking about the whole church. Right? And that's the whole point this morning. He's talking about the whole church. He's not talking about those that we pay. Um, he's talking about the whole church. Looks like I had a printer jam this morning. Uh, if you want to go to First Peter chapter 4 and verse 10, uh, just have a quick look there. Uh, if you were to get there, it would say something kind of like, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Okay, so let's take a look at some other scriptures, just real quick. Here's a few other scriptures. So Romans chapter 12, you're pretty familiar with, I imagine. You know, therefore, brethren, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to offer your lives as living sacrifices, right? That's priestly language. So Paul takes up the same priestly language. And again, he's not talking to a select class or select segment of uh, those who follow Jesus. He's talking to all the followers of Jesus who happen to be in Rome. The Jewish Christian stripe and the Gentile Christian stripe. He's talking to both sets of groups. Okay. Um, and again, Paul is going to follow it up with a passage that goes something like, don't conform to the world. This is a pretty common refrain, right? As priests, you don't conform, you don't live the way other people live. If, uh, is just a random example, as a priest, if somebody in my family dies, I can go touch them and mourn for them and not be called unclean but unlike the rest of you in israel who might see somebody else die and go and mourn for them and touch them i can't do that as a priest because i'm set apart and that would make me unclean and unworthy of the calling that's been bestowed on me 
is that that's an Old Testament thing. That's not a New Testament. I'm just saying that's the kind of thing we're talking about with priests as being set apart. So again, this don't conform to the way the world lives is uh, right in line with that, that all the members are to have that same kind of priestly identity. In Romans 12 as well, Paul's going to touch on that uh, neat image of kind of the church as a body. Everybody has different gifts, but it's all for the purpose of serving one body. And so if your gift is teaching, then teach. And if your gift is serving, then serve. And if it's loving, then do it diligently. And if it's leading, uh, lead well. Okay. First Corinthians 12, Paul is going to, uh, kind of draw on and even explore further that image of the body. Uh, a couple interesting things to just pick out from that passage is this uh, phrase. Now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. And so I'm going to step a little bit outside of just drawing the connection of all church members are ministers. And I'm going to say all, ch- all church members have in fact been gifted to serve the body of Jesus. You who are sitting here this morning have been gifted somehow to serve the body of Jesus. And that's not an accident. It's part of your calling in following Jesus is to find out what that is so that you can actually serve the body of Jesus. Okay. If you go your whole Christian life just sitting in a pew, you have not answered the call of Jesus. Because to be part of the body of Jesus, to be one of these members of the church who are ministers, is to actually minister, right, and serve. So that's part of what Paul draws out. Here's another one. He says, in fact, and this is cool, in fact, God has placed the parts of the uh, in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Okay, so if you are sitting there thinking, I don't have anything to offer, Paul would beg to differ. God has you where you are because he wants you here. That's what Paul's saying. You're in the body for a reason. Now, that's not always clear to us, but it's part of our job to figure that out. Okay, Ephesians 4, uh, Paul again uh, kind of talks about, you know, quick stop here. The unity of the church is important and the church is being built up into maturity by all kinds of different people, apostles and teachers and evangelists, and I'm missing somebody in the midst of there. Uh, but again, it's all for the goal of building up, um, building up the church. And the last one I want to stop on, a little bit weird. We don't usually talk about Second Thessalonians. Uh, but in Second Thessalonians, there's a really interesting part uh, that I think we need to think about. So in 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes to them and says, hey, you should live in light of Jesus' return. He's coming back soon, so be ready for it. Live in such a way that when Jesus catches you doing whatever you're doing, uh, you would be honored and not ashamed. You know, that kind of that kind of language. That's simplifying a bit, but that's 1 Thessalonians. So by the time he gets to 2 Thessalonians, uh, Paul is now saying, whoa, whoa, easy. I need to clarify a little bit my previous teaching because it seems like some of you have quit your jobs and are freeloading off the church waiting for Jesus to come back. That is not what I meant. <laughs> okay. So that's second Thessalonians in second Thessalonians. Um, he basically uh, says a couple of things. Uh, one of which is some of you are, he kind of calls out those who are idle says, those of you who are idle are causing divisions. So first of all, I would say a Christian life is not an idle life, according to Paul. Um, the freeloading life is not the Christian life, according to Paul. Okay, and he calls it out very clearly here. Those who are engaged in supporting their families and friends and engaged in serving the church tend not to cause a ruckus. Those who have nothing but time on their hands find creative ways to get in trouble. Those of you with small children know exactly what Paul's talking about. 
Secondly, Paul's example is one of pulling his own weight. He says, when we were among you, we worked hard to not be a burden to you. So learn from our example. The Christian community is a contributing community. And so that's part of this philosophy uh, of every, and this theology, I should say, not just philosophy, that every member is a minister. Um, so yes, the church is definitely here to serve and reflect God's generosity. Okay. So there's some, sometimes when we carry people, that's totally appropriate. That is what the church is supposed to be here for. It's a community. Um, but, but committed followers of Jesus are not to freeload off the church's service and charity. That's not the point. Let me, let me end with this pointed statement and then we'll move on to the next core value. I think there's something downright unchristian about committed followers of Jesus showing up week after week to soak in Sunday morning Bible class, offload our kids to the Bible class or ignite or spark, receive the blessings of worship, and never volunteering to help watch our kids during kids' worship, never sharing and presiding duties, or assisting in teaching our kids' Bible class. There's something downright unchristian about that. So I'll submit that pointed comment to you for your consideration. As we move on, let's talk about intentional discipleship. Okay, ready for this? Uh, the second core value we're going to look at this morning is intentional discipleship. You've probably noticed over the last several years we use this phrase uh, more and more. We started talking about um, we started talking about following Jesus in terms of being disciples of discipleship and disciple making. And at least part of this is because that's the word Jesus used. So we think that if we're going to follow Jesus using His words is not a bad thing. All right. Um, and as we're going to see, there's pretty widespread support for it across the whole Bible. So here we go. This is the, the core value that we've put together. Intentional discipleship so that growth for everyone from spiritual infancy through spiritual maturity, that is infancy to parenthood, becomes the intentional goal of all the church's ministries. We therefore value replication so that mature disciples will be about the task of nurturing disciples who perpetually make disciples. All right, we're going to dig deep again and start in the Old Testament. Okay, so really it's about replication. Uh, and we'll get to Jesus' words soon enough. First of all, let's start with the Passover and the teachable moment. Um, I've become an increasing fan of rituals in my life. Uh, kind of doing the same thing in the same way, particularly as it comes to uh, church, you know. So, for example, taking the bread and taking the cup every week. Uh, to me, it's important to do. Because it anchors me and it teaches me in ways, even when I'm not really interested in being taught, it teaches me. So Exodus chapter 12, unfortunately we don't have time to read the whole thing. Um, yeah, I knew I was going to get behind. Uh, we don't have time to read the whole thing, but uh, if you'll just kind of come along with me for a second. Exodus 12 is uh, kind of Israel getting ready to leave Egypt, okay? The plagues have happened, and uh, the last one is about to happen, the death of the firstborn, okay? So instructions are being given uh, to everybody about the Passover feast and unleavened bread. And here's a couple of phrases that jump out at me. It says, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance. When you're in the land, observe the ceremony, okay? So there's already a forward-looking uh, sense to this. Like, yes, we're doing it now, but this is a forward-looking thing. You're going to do this every year, even though you're not going to be getting freed from slavery every year, right? This is a kind of a one-time event. Uh, but when you're in the land, observe the ceremony. And when your children ask you why you do this, tell them. That's the most interesting phrase to me. 
This is actually being built into Israel's culture to say, you need to be a teaching people. You need to be a discipling people. Now, the word disciple isn't being used here, but notice what's happening. Somebody is already thinking about the fact that at some point down the line, your almost teenage son is going to start questioning everything. (laughs) And one of those things is going to be the Passover. Oh, Dad, why do we do this? Son, let me tell you. Let me tell you about that dark night back in Egypt when your ancestors were broken in slavery. And the God of your ancestors of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did this amazing thing. Son, let me tell you. Don't forget. It's incredible. The very same phrase comes up again. Uh, not too much further in Exodus chapter 13, um, when, uh, again, instructions are being given around, hey, God, God basically says, I spared your firstborns here because of this lamb. Every firstborn in Israel from this generation forward belongs to me. And so you're to redeem them. You need to, uh, I can't remember if it's kill a lamb or a, a goat or a ram. Anyway, they have to sacrifice something. The, the firstborn of everything, all the livestock, the firstborn of, of the families needs to be redeemed. It needs to be bought back. And so again, uh, it's you're to give over to the Lord the off, first offspring of every womb. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. And when your son asks you, when your son asks you, say to him with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. The Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt. Okay, so again, it's a teaching moment that's being built into um, their their life. But quite frankly, teaching, mentoring, and discipleship is a way of life. Uh, I'm going to give you two examples. Uh, one is out of Deuteronomy. This one we're fairly familiar with in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where uh, Moses is giving them the law, uh, or God is giving them the law through Moses, and it says this, Impress them, that is the commandments. Impress the commandments on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols. Write them on the door frames on your gates. Okay, so the idea is that God's teaching and and God being involved in our life and the way it's supposed to be everywhere. It's supposed to be integrated into the fabric. It's supposed to be the pictures on our walls. It's supposed to be the conversations that we have. It's supposed to be the things that we do. One of the most compelling and repeated statements after this throughout the whole... um, whole of Deuteronomy in particular is goes something kind of like this. Make sure that you don't forget the Lord your God when you are living comfortably in the promised land. It goes something along those lines. So right now it's tough and you can see God working and you know that he's the one that's sustaining you and seeing you through. But when you get comfortable, don't forget. Make sure you don't forget. It's a repeated phrase. But one of the most sobering statements comes out of Judges. Right on the heels of the Israelites conquering the promised land, it says this, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. Is that not sobering? Those of you with a little less hair or maybe more gray hair than me, doesn't that keep you awake at night? 
that when you die and go to be with our Lord, we're one generation away from forgetting the Lord and what he's done for us and how he brought us out of Egypt. It haunts me because I'm a man who lives in a land flowing with milk and honey and I'm pretty comfortable. And these words just kind of wash over me impress them on your kids. Talk about them all the time. Make sure you don't forget when things are going good. We need to teach because we're a forgetful people. And although we are not Israel, we are Israel. Okay. Jesus' choice of disciples. Let's move into the New Testament now. So where does this whole discipleship thing come from? I think part of it is rooted in the Old Testament, um, as we just looked at. Let's take a look here. And there's, again, a whole bunch of different scriptures. So Jesus picks the 12, right? Uh, Luke chapter 6, I think, is probably one of the best. I, I picked a whole bunch of passages out of Luke. There's a couple uh, in other places. You could go to pretty much any of the Gospels and, and find similar Kind of stuff here. But in Luke chapter 6, we have um, Jesus going out to a mountainside to pray. And he spent the night praying to God. And when he came down, he called his disciples to him. Or sorry, when morning came, he called the disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So Jesus calls them uh, kind of together, and he gathers them. And then in chapter uh, 9, you'll notice that this 12 actually journey with Jesus a lot. Uh, so in chapter 9, it says, When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons, to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole section there, but basically Jesus is with the 12. Again, that's somewhere kind of in the middle of Luke. Not really, it's more like the first third, but kind of the middle. And then again in chapter 22 here at the Last Supper. Um, and where did I pick that up? Verse 7. Uh, you know what? There's nothing specific in here that I want to kind of touch on other than just to say you remember pretty well the Last Supper and the 12 are there uh, minus Judas Iscariot when he goes to betray Jesus, right? So again, the 12. He picks this group of 12 out of the uh, hundreds or thousands that follow Jesus. There's this group of 12 that he takes a particular interest in. Um, but within that 12, Jesus even had a more select group. He had a smaller group that he focused on and gave a little bit more attention to. And we get these interesting little glimpses into their life. And so in Luke chapter 5, this is just prior to Jesus actually calling the 12. Uh, when Jesus calls his first disciples, you notice at the end of the story where, uh, you know, Jesus says, hey, I need those boats. And they push out to water and he teaches for a while. And then he's done teaching and the crowds go away. And he says, all right, Simon, uh, go ahead and let's let's go fishing. And Simon objects a little bit and then has this miraculous catch of fish. And Simon realizes uh, there's a beginning of lots of different mistakes he's going to make along the way that he's got Jesus wrong, right? And he falls down on the fish and says, go away. I'm the wrong guy. You're holy. You clearly saw that it like, just go away. I'm not worthy. And Jesus says, no, you, you're coming with me and Andrew and James. Is that right? That's Andrew, James and John. Sorry. So he calls four kind of in that first first chunk there. And then we're going to find out a little bit later in chapter 9. Uh, this is interesting to me that, again, within the 12, there's these little segments where Jesus kind of pulls away to teach the three something a little bit more. Uh, so Matthew chapter 9, picking up in verse 28, 
It says about eight days after Jesus said this, he just told them, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be crucified. He took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. Well, why didn't all the 12 get to go? I don't know. All I know is that he took three and that he does this several different times. Again, at the end of Matthew, uh, when he goes away to pray in Gethsemane, uh, he withdrew a little further with those three. They come with him. So there's something about these three that Jesus is investing a little bit more into. And he doesn't apologize for it. He doesn't say, sorry, crowds, I got to spend some time with the twelve. He doesn't say, sorry, crowds, or sorry, twelve, I got to spend some time with the three. He just, he does. Okay, so he's got his twelve. He's got his three. Then there's this interesting figure in the book of John, uh, which I don't know entirely what to do with. Uh, but it's the disciple whom Jesus loved. Starts showing up basically five times in John 13 and forward. And there's these references to this, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, at the end of the day, we don't know who this is. Lots of theories have been thrown out there. It's not why we're here this morning. So we don't know who this is. Uh, so we'll just call them by the name that's given them in scripture, which is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Okay. Um, but it's interesting that especially in contrast to Peter, the disciple whom Jesus loves acts in a generally speaking praiseworthy manner. So in at least two of these instances shows up in a location that indicates his loyalty where Peter runs away. Uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved is there. Okay. Uh, he's at the foot of the cross. Okay. That's pretty close to the scene of the crime, right? Uh, if you're going to be associated with this guy who's getting crucified and you could be next, right? guilt by association so he shows up in location indicating his loyalty um toward the end of the gospel he believes in the empty tomb even though he doesn't understand right the the resurrection was just kind of one of those mind-blowing events that they couldn't wrap their minds around and so he believes in the empty tomb even though he doesn't understand and then recognizes jesus from afar so when jesus is a long way off it's the disciple whom jesus loved who recognizes him not not peter not anybody else he recognizes jesus and then it's interesting, too, to see this little linguistic connection, which is hard to catch in English, uh, but it's the exact same phrase in uh, chapter 13 at the Passover, uh, right after Jesus has said, one of you is going to betray me, and they're all like, oh, who's going to be, who's going to be? The disciple whom Jesus loved leans on Jesus' chest, kind of leans back into him. And what's interesting about that phrase is it's the exact same phrase that describes how Jesus leans into the Father, in chapter 1 of John. <laughs> it's an interesting linguistic connection. So it, it, this disciple whom Jesus loved is like this, this I don't know about perfect uh, disciple, but it's certainly the one that seems to act in the way that you're supposed to act. And it becomes almost an invitation to us to say, you be the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? Don't be hard-headed Peter who denies and denies and denies. Learn from that. Be, be this other guy, this quiet figure in the background. Okay. So uh, Jesus chooses some disciples. So let's take a look, uh, kind of big, broad strokes then about Jesus' discipleship model. What exactly does it look like? Well, he chooses a few to focus on, right? Matthew 10, the same story of just saying, hey, here's the 12. He journeys with them and does ministry with them. I was going to give you a reference, but I thought Matthew 1 through uh, John chapter 21 was not probably helpful. <laughs> okay, pick, pick somewhere, anywhere in the Gospels. Jesus journeys with them. They're there when he teaches. They're there when he heals. They're there when he falls asleep. They're there when he wakes up. They're there when he gets challenged. I mean, they're there. So he journeys with them. He does ministry with them. He does life with them. Probably would have been a better way to, to put that. He eats with them. He, I imagine he joked with them at some point. I'd like to think the Son of God had a sense of humor. Because if not, I'm going to have a hard time finding a place in the kingdom of heaven. You know. Um, so they, they did life together. 
but this is kind of cool. He gives a ministry to do. I think I'm still in Matthew, and that's why I only gave you numbers. Let's go back to Matthew 14 for a second. So um, Jesus is going to feed the 5,000 in this text. And it said, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus says, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. (laughs) They're thinking that's not quite what we expected, right? So Jesus gives them ministry to do. And of course, they're going, wait a minute, crowds. Oh, but Jesus, we don't have much. And Jesus says, well, bring me what you have. Let's do this ministry together. And something amazing happens. Same thing in chapter 15, uh, except it's with a crowd of 4,000 instead of 5,000. Uh, and then in chapter 26, and this is, uh, this is kind of interesting. So this first two is kind of like Jesus saying, hey guys, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. And they, both times they're kind of like, but we can't. It's too big a problem. Jesus does it with them. But then towards the end, the disciples actually approach Jesus and say, hey, where do you want us to prepare the Passover? And we see this interesting kind of growth where instead of Jesus telling them what ministry to do, now the disciples are actually figuring out, hey, this is what's coming next. And then Jesus gives them a little bit of direction and then they go do the Passover together. Kind of interesting. But not only does he give them ministry to do, he debriefs them. And we get these cool little uh, passages where uh, Jesus will basically turn away from the crowds and turn to the disciples um, and, and give them a little bit of extra teaching. So in chapter 13, he explains the parable of the sower to them and why it is he speaks in parables. doesn't tell that to the crowds. Chapter 15, verses 12 to 20. Uh, is that right? No, that should be like verses 5 to 12, I think. Oh, 16. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. 16, 5 to 12. That's what I want to look at. After they fed the 4,000 and the 5,000, uh, he tells them to beware the yeast of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And they start talking about bread because they're still caught up on that whole thing that happened with these massive crowds. And so he kind of has to do some debriefing with them. Be like, guys, why are you talking about bread? I'm not talking about bread anymore. (laughs) And then at the end of this little text, it says, then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So here Jesus debriefs them so that they understand what's going on. And then ultimately at the end, and we've seen this text a lot uh, in the last few years, Jesus says, therefore, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go make disciples of all the nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. So he basically says, what I've just done with you, you go do it. Okay? I'm going away now. It's on you. That sounds like we've got to be pretty intentional about discipleship. We're going to skip the metaphor, and we're going to talk about Paul. Uh, here's Paul's learned pattern, and I want you to see the similarities between him and Jesus. Uh, Barnabas goes to find Paul. Remember uh, Saul, Paul, he killed a lot of people, a lot of Christians. He was responsible for uh, persecuting the church. Uh, guess what? When Jesus reached out to him, the church wasn't so fond of having him come in the fold. <laughs> Like, are you a spy infiltrating? This one guy, Barnabas, says, no, that, that's our guy. God's done something in him. That's our guy. So Barnabas goes take Saul and Paul. And then shortly after that, Barnabas and Paul take John Mark, and they go do some mission work. And then after that, Barnabas takes John Mark. Paul takes Silas. Okay, so they go different directions. And then shortly after that, Paul and Silas take Timothy. You see what's happening here? And again, they're doing ministry together, but in Paul's life, this is his learned pattern. This is how he does ministry. 
He does it with somebody. Because that's the way he was taught to do ministry. Uh, and again, First and Second Thessalonians, I, I quite like because they have a lot of things to uh, say about kind of a live. You have to live the message, basically. Uh, Paul's life and the message lined up. The Thessalonians got to see the gospel in action. And Paul celebrates the Thessalonians as gospel bearers. And so because he had been able to be with them, he can say things like, you know how we lived among you as gentle and caring, nurturing mothers, not as someone who asserted authority over you. Even though we could have, that's not the way we were, right? You know how hard we worked so we wouldn't be a burden to you. Um, and so do the same thing. And not only that, he's, he knows them because he's lived with them and he can say, look, this, this love stuff that you're doing, this growing in the gospel, keep at it. Keep doing that. Okay. Uh, and the last slide I'm going to whistle through, and I'm sorry for taking you so quickly through this. Um, Paul and Timothy, this is one of the cool uh, places in the New Testament where we get to see discipleship at kind of a deeper level because we get to see some of the ongoing interaction between Paul and Timothy. Again, uh, Paul and Silas, so shortly after Paul jumps out on his own away from Barnabas, he picks up Timothy, sees some really good things in him, and takes Timothy all over the place, shows him how to do ministry. Paul gave Timothy ministry to do. In the beginning of 1 Timothy, he says, um, I want you to finish the task that I left you there to do. And then in these two books, he continues to encourage and guide Timothy. And then ultimately, in 2 Timothy 2, 2, says, I want you to find reliable men who will pass on to others what I have given to you, or something along those lines. Okay, so Paul is concerned about Timothy being a disciple, making disciple. With Second uh, Timothy is probably Paul's last book, and so these are some of the last words he's ever going to write. And he says, Timothy, you carry on what we've started. Okay, so Jesus says that when he goes away, guys, carry on what I've started. And here Paul says to Timothy, carry on what I've started with you. Final thoughts, because apparently I had one more slide, one more slide. Here we go. Intentional disciple makers are all over the New Testament. I didn't even get close to covering all the texts that I wanted to. The apostles assign ministry. They don't do it all themselves. Uh, Barnabas picks Paul. Eunice and Lois, as a matter of fact, disciple Timothy. So they're uh, in his family tree. It happens within the family. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila uh, took a, you know, Jacob Hansen or Norrin Bailey aside. Said, you got some, you got some talent, uh, but let me teach you the way more accurately. Okay? Uh, and they, they recognized it. They're on the lookout. So there's disciple makers all over the place. So to be an intentional disciple maker, here's my invitation to you. Get involved in doing ministry. If I didn't lay it on heavy enough in the first part here where every member is a minister, I don't know what's going to move you. Okay? It's straight out of Scripture. It's not me and you fighting. It's you and the Scripture, you and the Holy Spirit fighting. Um, so get involved in doing something. Pick something and do it. And if you don't like the first thing you try, then try something else. That's allowed. You, you can quit as long as you're going <laughs> to pick up something else. Okay? Secondly, invite someone to do it with you. That, that is probably the clearest pattern I've seen through the whole entire New Testament and the Old Testament. Do it together. Okay? And then when you're done doing it together, watch and listen carefully and talk about it so that you're actually learning together. Pray about it together. Come back to the scriptures. Okay? Um, so I think that's what it means to be intentional disciple makers. And it's part of the reason we've tried to kind of raise this up as a core value. Uh, not tried to. It is a core value. is because it's all over the Bible. Okay. Only five minutes over. That's, uh, that's pretty good. Do you guys want to say anything before we uh, cut loose and have some time for fellowship? Oh, you're welcome.
um, I'll hang around up here for a little bit if you guys want to chat uh, and have some thoughts after the fact. Thanks very much, and I'll uh, see you in a bit.